Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. We can do this. You can ban chokeholds, you can, but, you, but beyond that, you have to teach people how to de-escalate circumstances. De-escalate. So instead of anybody coming at you and the first thing you do is shoot to kill, you shoot them in the leg. No surprise there from Break a Leg Biden, alias Genocide Joe, who never saw a war he hasn't drooled over, even while claiming no less than five draft deferments to avoid his own participation during the Vietnam conflict. Here to put all that into perspective in the present time and more is political analyst and Pacifica host Garland Nixon declaring, The emotion I feel is fury, it's rage. This is America. This system is on fire. Good evening. My name is Garland Nixon. Lots going on. Let me say this. You know, my feelings, I've talked about uh, different things, but my feelings, it it, it comes back to this to me. Uh, There's nothing surprising here. There's nothing surprising here. This is the history of the United States. When I see Israel, this is what this is what they did to black folks. This is what they did to Native Americans. This is what they did to in Indonesians. Read the book, The Jakarta Method. This is what's been going on in um, in South America. The United States has been doing genocide. Some for some reason. You got people who think, nah, man, we're good. Oh, I voted for Joe Biden. He's going to look out for the LGBTQ browns and black and this group and that group. And, oh, he's going to work for human rights. Well, you know what he's going to do. You know what he's going to do. I'm, you know what I'm happy to say? I'm happy to say that in 2020 when people are like, we've got to vote for Biden to stop Trump. I was like, I'm not voting for old Joe, shoot him in the legs, Biden or Trump. I was like, remember when they, they said something to Joe Biden? They're like, hey, what are you going to do? You know, a lot of black people are getting shot. And Joe's answer was, well, how about we shoot him in the legs? You know, I mean, we don't want to stop actually shooting black people. You know, come on, let's not get, get carried away here. But maybe we could shoot him somewhere where they'll have less chance of dying. Like in the legs, they still got to be shot, but maybe we'll be more gentle in how and where we shot him. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah I'm voting for that guy. Oh, great job here. Great job. And, and people are like, well, you got to choose between one. And I'm like, yeah. I got to choose between Trump and genocide. No, I don't have to choose. I'll stay home and rake leaves. And now here we sit with old genocide Joe. They got a walls built around a city. The people can't leave. People can't come in. And they have already dropped twice as much explosive on that city than was dropped on Hiroshima in the form of an atom bomb. That's that's the Democratic Party, and the people are like, yeah, we're staying up for the Democrats. They're the good guys. I'm like, there ain't no good guys. This is this is America. This is how America started. This is what America is, and it ain't Israel. No, my friends, it's not Israel. Here's what I mean. Could Israel do this without bombs? Nope. We're give, get ready to give them like 40, 14 million, I haven't even, billion dollars. Could they do it without our money? No, no, they couldn't. Could they do it without our bombs? No, they couldn't. We just sent warships, all these things around to protect them, to make sure. Could they do it without that? No. The fact of the matter is, this is the United States. Israel doesn't exist as a nation. Israel is a fort. Israel is a United States military outpost in the middle of the oil fields. That's what they are. That's why Joe Biden said if Israel didn't exist, we'd have to create it to address our interest in the region. That's why Alexander Haig said Israel is our what? Our unsinkable aircraft carrier. It is the way the United States projects military power into the oil-rich region known as the Middle East. That's what it is. And the Palestinians mean nothing. It is. This is our fort, and there's Indians around the fort. What do you got to do? We're going to exterminate the Indian. That's all it is. That's what we did before. That's what we're doing now. There's a little bit of plausible deniability. We gave them the bombs. We gave them the money. We gave them the intelligence. We gave them the equipment. We gave them the planes. We gave them everything. We give them everything. They can't do without with us. Hey, Joe, they won't stop. Well, I asked them to stop, but they said no. Perhaps if you stop giving them money and bombs and equipment and planes and everything, they'd do it, wouldn't they? Yes, they'd stop if you had them, told them to stop. You ain't going to tell them to stop because this is what America does. 
in Africa, everywhere. But still, there's going to be some people running around saying, but I got to vote for the Democrats because of Trump. And hey, they may genocide people of color. But, you know, I mean, hey, nobody's perfect. Get out of here with that. Like, you heard about slavery, and we couldn't really feel it, and about the genocide of the Indians, but you couldn't really feel it. Do you kind of, this? and I'm going to throw this out at you, I kind of feel like, yeah, this is what it feels like. This is, this is what, intuitively, it feels like, yeah, that's what them sons of, you know what, actually did to people in this country. I can see it. I can smell it. I can feel it right now. That's it. I, again, I say I look back at the genocide that's happened, and I ask myself, what kind of human being can sleep at night? Not just Genocide Joe, but the members of Congress, the Congressional Black Caucus, the Latino Caucus, the Progressive Caucus, the Everything Caucus. What kind of human being goes to bed at night knowing that at their filthy, bloody hand, children are being murdered, men, women, seems torn apart, innocent civilians, who goes to sleep and sleeps knowing that? What kind of a monster does that? In my voice, then I'm a bit angry. That's the word. The, the, the emotion that I feel, I would say, is fury. It's rage. That's the, that's the emotion I feel. I'm, I'm voicing my, it's rage and fury. And look, you know what? You can disagree with me all you want to. I think it's healthy. It's a healthy situation for people to have disagreements. I don't get mad at people that disagree with me. I like to have an intellectual discussion, but I, I never get mad at people. I think it's healthy. You don't learn anything unless you have disagreements. I can't stand people sitting around all talking about how right we are. If somebody wants to disagree with me, that's cool. But I don't see how you can look at a walled city with the civilians trapped inside the city with merciless savages dropping bombs on men, women, and children, annihilating whole families. And you can look at that and say, yeah, but I think it's a good idea because we've got to look out for our interests in the region. Or, hey, you know, the men, women, and children may not have done anything, but somebody else did. And that person was the same race or religion or something. So let's just bomb these little four-year-olds to pieces. You you got no heart if you were like that. And, um, I really believe that, you know, I, I, I was reading lately, they were interviewing some people on the street in Milwaukee, right? And they were just simply saying, look, y'all have made me promises every four years and nothing happens. Nothing's getting better for me. My jobs ain't getting better. If I go to school, I got student loans I can't afford. My life is a living hell. And y'all just, all you got is promises. And then when you get in office... You're, oh, we've got to deal with Ukraine. We've got to deal with Taiwan. We've got to deal with this country. You always got a boogeyman, five, 8,000 wilds. It's Putin. It's Assad. It's Xi. It's whoever in Iran. You send all your money overseas. you got nothing for me, and my life is going to crap. There's no opportunities for me and my children. I don't feel safe. The system is on fire. This system is in crisis. This system is falling apart right in front of our eyes it is a disaster in life you have to have a deal breaker you know what i mean like a guy walks in you know you're a young 25 year old guy i'm thinking quite a ways back 25 years old i walk into a bar there's a nice young lady there i'm talking oh man things sound good oh wow hey maybe we can go out sometime okay here's a possible future right And at some point in the conversation, you say, so tell me about yourself. And she says, well, you know, I'm a pretty nice person, but I'm a hatchet murderer. And every now and then I kill people with hatchets. That's a deal breaker. Well, perhaps I'll go on about my business. This ain't going to work out right. You have to have deal breakers. I don't know about the rest of these black folks out here, but genocide of people of color, genocide of anybody. But you're black and they're genocide people of color. What do you think they mean for you? That's a deal breaker, man come back to me in six months talking about okay well now that the genocide we've created we've committed is over can we talk about it maybe we can offer you something how about you come back into the fold nah (laughs) yeah right genocide joe genocide joe biden is giving these people bombs and weapons and money and and we got flying over giving them intelligence we we got soldiers on the ground this ain't israel what people in america have to understand is Israel can't do it without Joe Biden and his crew. The questions are, what kind of monsters 
have we put in office? We got to ask ourselves, and how do you make sure this does not happen again? They don't have nothing to do with us. We got homeless people on the street. People can't pay their rent. Uh, Young people cannot pay their student loans. All the problems we have here, and they're sending money over. They got no money for you or your family, but they got money to murder men, women, and children day and night. What kind of monsters are we do we have? You know what kind of monsters we have. The same kind of monsters that started this country. They have not changed their stripes. A ruling elite here that is murderous and savage with that 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 are sociopathic with no conscience. That's who started this country. When you look back at what they did to the Native Americans and the slaves, that's the same lack of conscience it takes to do what's happening today. You know what? I, I look at it the same way as, as I look to I look at this uh, uh, thing going on in Gaza. The people of China, they ain't white, are they? They're not allowed for their country to rise up. They're not allowed to have a successful economy that might grow past or possibly bigger than the United States because they're not white. They're yellow people. And so now these brutal monsters that run this country, they want war. Hey, wait a minute. Somebody's going to be a powerful, wealthy country and ain't white. We got to kill them. That's I mean, it's these people are psychopaths. They don't represent us. And you know what? They don't even like us. And coming up next on Arts Express, Noah Wiley, no stranger to playing real people in movies as Steve Jobs in Pirates of Silicon Valley, Stanley Pottinger and Mark Felt, the man who brought down the White House, and according to Bob Woodward, Pottinger as the only person who ever knew secretly that Felt was Deep Throat, and as political cartoonist Thomas Nast in Drunk History with Nast considered the father of the American cartoon, whose drawings were instrumental in the downfall of Boss Tweed and the election of Ulysses S. Grant as president. Now Wiley, alias Dr. Carter on Decades of ER, is our guest on the show this week as he appears in his latest film as a character who is not real but could be in At the Gates as wealthy lawyer and family man Peter Barris, who hides his undocumented servants in his locked cellar, claiming the immigration cops are after them. Or are they? The rebellious son who has accompanied his mother there on her chores thinks otherwise, perhaps holding them as forced servitude. First, some scenes from At the Gates, then Noah Wiley, with a look back as well at the resolved Hollywood strikes and their fallout counting suicide and homelessness visited upon, in particular, the resulting destitute film crews. Aquí vive? Mm-hmm. Está bien grande esta casa. Nico, thank you for helping today. I'm Marianne Barris. Thanks for letting me come work here. Have you explained the rules? Peter doesn't want anyone going into his office. Yes, he won't be any trouble. Dining window open. Anna, why don't you and your son just go in the guest bedroom? The officers that came to the gate work for immigration. If you were to try to leave, they're likely waiting for you out on the street. We have a space in the basement. But we need your cell phones to make sure they stay off. Arreglaron todo esto en tan poco tiempo. Sí, ¿y qué pasa? Esperando. ¿Y por qué solamente la puerta se abre por afuera? Hey, were you and your former housekeeper close? She lived with us. What happened? My mom could be pretty demanding. She'd end up quitting. You were sorry again? No. What are you doing? You could not come into my office. Nico, we can't just be up here like this. It's important that children see we treat people like you with respect. Do you want to get separated from your mom? We're committing a crime. This is a crime scene. Mom, they're back. They're at the gate. Estamos fallando. Vamos a estar bien. ¿Qué pasa si no? Prometo que sí, mamá. 
Hello and welcome to our show. How are you? Thank you for having me. I'm very well. What was it about At the Gates, this film and this story, that led you to want to be part of the production? Well, I was unemployed at the time, so somebody offered me a job. It was always a really good incentive. Uh, <laughs> I guess sent the script, and uh, it was just one of those reads where I kept waiting for it to fall apart. You know, I'm watching a souffle rise and rise and rise and rise, and I'm thinking to myself, there's no way that this thing's going to keep rising this gracefully. It's going to fall. And then it didn't fall. It just kind of ended. And I thought, wow, that's a really sophisticated piece of writing. I'm sure that this guy can't pull this off. And then I met with the director and found him to be really thoughtful, extremely intelligent, yeah. articulate, uh, creative. And I thought, well, maybe, maybe. And every once in a while, I like to lean out of my comfort zone and, and do a job that has uh, not a lot of frills attached to it, where you kind of go to the gym with a folding chair and a cup of coffee and do your best work. And that's what this was. It was a chance to go in and work with some really terrific actors, and Miranda Otto and Ezekiel Pacheco, and uh, play for a short period of time, try to make something special. You never know how these things are going to turn out. You kind of go into them assuming that they'll fall apart at some link in the chain. But this one didn't, and uh, it turned out great. I'm really proud of it. Really happy to be talking to you about it today. And what was it about your character, Peter Barris, that intrigued you to want to portray him? And what about Peter, the conflicts that are going inside his head related both to what's going on in the real world around him and also his personal frustrations, including concealing that sex magazine from his wife? <laughs> well, it is a movie about secrets and it's a movie about um, projected image. And ostensibly, it's about an absolute family who have a domestic worker who brings her son to work with her one day, a teenage boy, who is a good kid, college-bound, but has been through some adversity. And during the course of their shift, <clears throat> immigration show up doing a sweep, and we realize they're undocumented workers, and the family has to decide whether or not to let them be taken and deported or whether they can try to hide them for an indefinite period of time until they can get them out safely which is what they choose to do. But as the movie progresses, you start to question whether or not all of that is true, whether these characters are being motivated from the places you've been led to believe they are. So my character, Peter, walks that line maybe more than anybody else. You don't really know where he's coming from, and he seems like he's got a lot going on that he's not telling anybody, and that is true, but it's not exactly what you think it is that he's not telling, and that becomes the, the unraveling for the movie. Um, in terms of his personal situation, you know, he's very relatable. Uh, you know, when we meet him, he's a guy who at one time in his life felt very much like he was master of his universe and, and understood where all the compass points were. And now that's not true anymore for him. He's feeling a loss of relevance and power, and he doesn't understand what's happening, and he's desperately trying to get back what he feels like he's lost. So in some ways, his masculinity is on the wane as he watches this young man in his home come into his own manhood. It's a bit of a cross-trajectory arc as these two guys are meeting each other at a big moment from very different places. And what are your thoughts about the final scene in the film, which we don't want to give away, but which has quite a breathtaking, subversive sense of triumph to it, and that may actually be a new trend of rebellion arising from what seems to be growing cracks in this political system. Uh, it's a survival story. You know, survival could be defined in a lot of different ways. Um, I think that you won't see the ending coming, but when you reverse engineer the plot from that point, you'll see that it all built up to that moment just beautifully. And... Uh, you know, it almost becomes at the end beat an origin story for for a character to go on and really begin the next adventure of his life or their life. And I think that's kind of an exciting place to leave this film. And on another note, did all those years of being a doctor on ER change your life? <laughs> yes. Yes, is uh, the short answer to that. Very big question. Yeah, every in every way, shape, and form. How so? Well, I walked out of that job, that job as a 22-year-old bachelor with a cat and a 
ficus tree in an apartment. And I walked off that show almost 40 with an almost divorce with two kids and, uh, you know, very few places in the world where they didn't know the show that I had been doing. And, uh, you know, it was just a completely, when the train let me off at the station, I was a different man and it was a different part of the world that I walked out. Yeah. And speaking about changing your life, what are your thoughts about the actor strike moving into a resolution and where you've been on the picket lines? Well, I've been very active and uh, committed to this fight. My wife and I figured we walked about 700 miles up and down oh. two blocks somewhere for two <laughs> labor unions. Uh, it's a consequential fight. I'm very happy to be part of it. I heard that there were some grumblings that the MPTP was going to go back and revise some of this draconian language regarding AI, if we can get to some kind of some closure. But it's been nasty, yeah. confusing, disheartening. And what do you see as the end to that struggle? I do, because I think the resolve is pretty uh, committed on our side. Uh, the underestimated how slowly and systematically all of the rights and privileges we've enjoyed up until this point have been degraded, and how hard it is for the average actor to make a living sustainably and raise a family. Mm. Almost impossible, the economics being what they are. You have to make $28,000 a year to qualify for the insurance in our union. I have a friend who worked seven jobs last year, seven oh. jobs that you would have watched and you would have seen and still didn't make her insurance because the fees that they pay for day rates and guest stars even on seven different jobs, didn't add up to 28 grand. Mm. And they understand that, and that's how they've structured it. And yeah. it's been coming for so long that there's really nothing to lose. So if uh, they want to take out-of-work actors and say you're still out of work, that's not going to change much for us. Mm. Uh, but it will change a lot for them. And any last word on At the Gates? Well, independent movies have taken such a huge hit. Even before COVID, they were sort of taking a big hit, and COVID buried them. There used to be theaters dedicated to showing these types of films. There used to be you know, reviewers dedicated to reviewing them, and there were huge audiences that supported them. And I believe that there still are. I just don't think that people have had the courage to make them and try of late. And so At the Gates is a bit of a proof of concept that you can take uh, $800,000, and a group of actors and a really good script mm. and go off to one location and make a really nice little movie. Oh, and yeah. uh, hopefully audiences will will appreciate that, that endeavor and want to see more of that kind of stuff just as an alternative, just for variety's sake, because um, we're starting to see the same kind of movies come down the pike in the same kind of costumes. Mm. And um, we all like a more variety. Okay, thank you so much, Noah Wiley, for calling into the show. My pleasure. Great talking to you. Whenever I'm in New York, I'm Tommy Chong. I kind of created Cheech and Chong. And I listen to Arts Express non-stop. Because it's the only show that really tells you what's going on. Arts Express. Hi, 
this is Jack Shalom. If there's anything that defines today's political era, it is the amount of pure BS that is spouted and accepted every day. One of my favorite writers who cuts through all that is Australian-based Caitlin Johnstone. With a sharp eye and a sharp tongue and a sharp pen, she states the obvious but forbidden. I'm going to read two poems of hers. The first is called In These Times, and the second is called Thank You for Your Service, written on the occasion of the death of whistleblower Daniel Ellsberg. In Times Like These In times like these, when nuclear warheads are being moved into position, when weapons manufacturers can't keep up with the demand, when the pundits are making everyone stupid and crazy, when it's hard to remember Assange's face, but you can't turn on a screen without seeing Zelensky, when our culture is manufactured on conveyor belts in New York, Hollywood, Arlington, and Langley, when everything's fake, but the bombs and blockades. When it feels like we're rocketing toward Armageddon next to Jeff Bezos in a space suit. When it feels like the angels have become smack addicts but have to settle for crappy fentanyl fixes. When it feels like God got kicked out of the group home and has to sell his plasma and sperm for cash. When it feels like heaven must be powered by smoggy 19th century London coal. When it feels like the angel and the demon on humanity's shoulders are double-effing our ear canals. When the bastards have sleeves full of bottomless aces while we're still trying to learn the rules. When annihilation feels like a certainty and transcendence like a fairy tale. It helps to have somewhere solid to take your stand. In times like these, when everyone's so alienated that they have to consume chemical intoxicants just to share affection, when everyone's so lonely, they trap animals in their homes with them so at least they have something that can't leave. When everyone's so afraid of their own vulnerabilities, they preemptively attack anyone who lowers their guard. When everyone's pouring their lives into generating profits for miserable employers who will never have enough. When everyone's being driven mad by the pointlessness of a civilization built around wealth extraction. When Everyone's allowing themselves to be sedated into a coma so they can't experience their own despondency. When the radiant authenticity of nature is paved over to build cinemas to watch CGI creatures in CGI worlds. When the sacred song of the heart is getting drowned out by desperation for dopamine hits from strangers on apps. When the causeless joy of being keeps getting lost to fear and insecurity, it helps to have some grounding in the changeless. In times like these, truth can sneak in like a thief like a ray of light through the smallest crack, like a ninja, like a Batman. Truth can sneak in and bonk you on the head, leaving you unable to see anything but the primal oneness, unable to remember how you ever got things so mixed up, like Gilligan when he got hit with the coconut, except good. In times like these, no matter how effed up you are, you can sometimes catch Buddha winking at you in the mirror. In times like these, 
everything is so tenuous that Satori can come crashing in at any moment. In times like these, Shiva can just get tired of putting on the act and take off the U-mask and break character. In times like these, anyone's petty and irrelevant natterings can be interrupted by the hatching of the heart. We are such weird, mascara-streaked, runny-nosed, ape-mutants. We are sharp-toothed, blood-splashing, murder-monkeys. We are honey hearted giants with galaxies in our eyes. I really hope you know how beautiful you are. No matter how hard things are, and no matter how hard things get, I will love you through and through until the heat death of the universe and beyond and we just might get our miracle after all. Beautiful ape mutants. We just might get our miracle after all. In times like these, anything is possible. In times like these, anything can be. In times like these, we've all got nothing to lose. Which means we've got nothing to lose by leaping. Thank you for your service. Thank you for your service. I say this not to the employees of the war machine who in truth serve nothing besides imperial domination and the profit margins of Raytheon and Lockheed Martin. I say this to the peacemakers, to the truth-tellers, to the defiant ones, to those who have shown the light of truth upon the blood-spattered face of the empire against their own interests for the benefit of everyone, to those who have stared down the barrel of the most powerful military force ever assembled and said, do your worst. To the grandparents who have been dragged from nuclear weapons protests in handcuffs to create a safer world for their grandchildren. To the activists whose incurable disobedience has led them to disrupt empire managers at think tank conferences or paint no war across the face of the Sydney Opera House. To the selfless martyrs who've exposed the abuses of the machine, knowing full well that the scales of justice are weighted heavily against them. To the hero in Belmarsh. To the Pentagon Papers whistleblower who today closed his gentle eyes for a final time. Thank you for your service. For serving the highest interest over your own. For pouring everything you've got into the hope for a better tomorrow for betting everything on the hope of a healthy and harmonious world, for creating a guiding light to help humanity steer its way home, for seizing your moment to help make things right instead of letting it pass like everyone around you, for somehow finding the strength to swim against the current when it would be so much easier to drift along with the madness. For somehow 
finding a higher calling in this wildly dysfunctional society where everything is pointed at selfishness and meaninglessness for somehow cultivating something profound and authentic within yourself in the midst of a civilization of the vapid and meaningless for doing your very best to get a foot on the brake pedal when everything else is accelerating towards the cliff's edge for listening to that small voice within which can tolerate no more for turning around for taking your stand for finding the courage for doing what is right for putting truth first for lighting the way thank you for your service we will do our best to carry the torch forward and finish what you started You've been listening to two poems by Caitlin Johnstone. More of her work can be found at CaitlinJohnstone.com. Thank you for your service, Caitlin Johnstone. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. And now here's Bro on the Global Television Beat, the Arts Express Paris correspondent raises the confounding question, what to watch after all nine seasons of Suits were exhausted? Who knew that next we would all be live streaming genocide? This is Bro on the Global Television Beat, Breaking Glass. Today's episode, live streaming genocide with ads or genocide plus with no ads. This summer, while the writers and actors were marching on picket lines trying to save their jobs and secure at least a working wage in ever more expensive Los Angeles with no new product in sight, streaming audiences turned to a little-known series called Suits, now housed on Netflix, about a group of lawyers, which suddenly became the rage. The question then was, what to watch after all nine seasons of Suits were exhausted? Who knew that the answer would be that next, we would all be live-streaming genocide as the world watches the Israelis bombard Gaza, killing, according to UNICEF, over 100 children a day in a population where nearly half are children, that is, 18 or younger. And as with all kinds of TV entertainment, which the French call divertissement or diversion, the Western media tells us we are simply to be pleasantly horrified at the spectacle while doing nothing about it. After all, the bombing started in the Halloween season and could be streamed alongside the season's slasher feature Five Nights at Freddy's in perhaps a seamless package. The Biden administration, cheering on the bombing and supplying weapons and tactical and intelligence assistance, did its best to tap down dissent and keep us all on our couches as spectators. The Biden neocons are George W. Bush followers of the Wolfowitz Doctrine, which says that any state entity or corporation which challenges U.S. domination in any area must be eliminated. They were out in full force justifying the carnage. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan in a Le Monde featured interview allowed us how the U.S. had made some errors in the war against terrorism and explained they were counseling the Israelis on how to avoid these mistakes. This is the repressed language of network TV, where never a cuss word must be spoken in the living room of American audiences. What Sullivan failed to say is that the U.S. errors, as reported in a study by Brown University, resulted in the death of, by both military weapons and the economic weapon of sanctions of approximately 4.6 million people in the Middle East. When asked what was the solution to the Israeli occupation of Palestinian lands and the brutal 75 years suppression surrounding that occupation, Sullivan replied that the way out was to be found in Saudi-Israeli reapproachment, which would be a first step toward a Palestinian state. The Palestinians, on the other hand, regard this attempt at the construction of a U.S. axis in the Middle East as the last straw, the nail in their coffin, which will result in their annihilation. Disrupting this stratagem was a major reason for their attack on October 7th. 
The supposedly peaceful solution, which simply furthers U.S. imperial aims in the oil-rich region, would be the substitute for an earlier season's programming that is now canceled, the Bill Clinton-brokered Oslo Accords. The supposed blueprint for a two-state solution was instead simply an excuse for Israel to claim more territory in the West Bank and the other occupied areas. A Palestinian described these phony accords as simply resulting in more walls, more checkpoints, more prisons. As the bombs continue falling and the outcry around the world for a ceasefire grows, the super hawks in Biden's cabinet began proposing a humanitarian pause. Sounds good and appealing. It will give us all time to get up, get to the refrigerator, make a sandwich, and still be able to get back for the next round of bombing. As Norman Finkelstein describes it, this is nothing more than fattening up the turkey before slaughtering it. But it sounds good and makes an administration which is now seeking funds to launch or perpetuate three world wars in Taiwan against China and Ukraine against Russia and in the Middle East against Iran sound peaceful. The better and easier to segue back from the evening devastation of the news to the ritualized carnage of Sunday football. In Europe, supposedly less mediatized and more media-savvy audiences were also subjected to more sophisticated mainstream programming in both the left and right presses. Liberacion's coverage of this massacre would have had its anti-colonial founder, Jean-Paul Sartre, turning over in his grave. As per European Foreign Secretary Josep Perel, who described Europe as the garden and the rest of the world as the jungle. Its stories on the bombing of Al-Ali Arab Hospital, where over 400 people were killed, used only mainstream Western analysts to support the Israeli claim the hospital was destroyed by an errant Palestinian rocket. Accompanying this story was another detailing widespread protests in the streets as Arab populations disputed this account and blamed Israel. Though Israel has before and since bombed numerous hospitals, ambulances, and convoys of wounded fleeing hospitals, the juxtaposition of the two viewpoints made it seem that the reasoned garden technical experts would find the truth, while in the jungle, wild crowds were simply irrational. This, despite the fact that many non-mainstream media Western intelligence sources, such as ex-CIA analyst Larry Johnson, also disputed the Israeli claim. Finally, in an attempt to make sure everyone stayed home in front of their sets, the French President Macron banned pro-Palestinian protests, which gave free reign to the police to use tear gas, water cannons, and arrests to quell dissent. The French Constitutional Court affirmed the ban, a dangerous curbing of rights, but then threw the decision of whether protests could be held over to the individual prefects. What finally overthrew the ban, though, was people coming out en masse in a way that it could not be enforced. The ban itself is nothing more than an extension by Macron of the utterly undemocratic suppression of discussion in the legislature as bill after bill is now passed by imperial decree without discussion. And this by someone who, like Biden, calls himself a centrist. The programming now is starting to be more varied. The sites of mass protests everywhere in the world are creating a new series where not just destruction but also dissent is live-streamed to counter corporate media complacency. However, as crowds in the West and almost the entirety of the Global South call this barbarity into question, the massacring continues with the U.S. empire, which is masterminding it, very happy to let a leveled Gaza a la a kind of Game of Thrones wasteland, serve as a warning to the vast majority of humanity that this is what happens when they rise up and attempt to throw off all the vestiges of colonial rule. China has the Belt and Road Initiative, a new silk route designed to raise the level of all those along the way, to which the West counters with a devastated Gaza as the price to pay for demanding an equal place in the world. Two sharply different series now live streaming. This is Bro on the Global Television Beat, Breaking Glass. And coming up next on the show... Will the future be a fantastic place to live? Will you be able to live there at all? I asked a chatbot, what do we need to worry about? It rolled through a litany of threats, dangers, and anxieties ahead. Then it said, but stay optimistic. Hi, this is the UK Desperats Express, and my name is Brett Gregory. What follows is my review of Stephen Asher's new video essay, Looking Forward. Looking Forward can be described as a conversational meditation on, and mediation of, the filmmaker's personal understanding of optimism, 
and pessimism, underpinned by a linear cause and effect perspective on the past, present and future. Ash's feature, Troublesome Creek, was nominated for an Academy Award in 1996, and many of his productions since then have performed very well on the North American Film Festival circuit. He was educated at Harvard University, and he is also the author, with Ed Pincus, of the best-selling Filmmaker's Handbook, a comprehensive guide for the digital age. The narrative is explicitly divided into seven segments and his voiceover is primarily illustrated by a series of black-and-white AI-generated still images of unintentionally disfigured humanoids in various environments, such as children in a living room on Christmas Day, a group of women posing on a New York sidewalk, villagers with baskets of cucumbers in Ukraine, and so on. This aesthetic approach visually contrasts the comforting familiarity of the mortal past with the unpleasant strangeness of the technological present, the aim of which is to introduce and reassert a supposed shared sense of existential anxiety with regards to the shape of things to come. This is not a particularly original filmic conceit, however, since, over the past two years, millions of social media flaneurs will have encountered the stupid, the surreal, and sometimes the sublime output of the freely available DALI text-to-image software, which Asher appears to be using here. And, moreover, they would have also experimented with it themselves. From a self-proclaimed optimistic standpoint, the narrator proceeds to idealise the goal of surrounding oneself with a close family, loyal friends, and a stable career in an effort to achieve prosperity. In turn, he assumes that his audience naturally adopts a similar position, overlooking the tens of millions of us who, for one reason or another, have no hope of holding on to, or even briefly experiencing, such earthly pleasures. In turn, he disapproves of pessimists who tend to catastrophize negative situations, suggesting that the only desire of such doomsayers is to walk the earth alone. However, by doing so, he seems to be normalising a certain kind of first-world conservatism, that of an educated urban middle-class family man who attends to and is concerned by prominent news headlines while being professionally and financially secure. On the contrary, citizens in many European countries, suffering from centuries of autocracy, conflict and cruelty, have historically nurtured and celebrated a culture of pessimism because they have found it to be reassuring, encouraging and even enriching. Moreover, we Europeans take great pride in the fact that such a cultural tendency has, over the years, produced epic and eloquent catastrophists like Franz Kafka in the Czech Republic, Samuel Beckett in Ireland, and Virginia Woolf in England. Indeed, the US itself has had its fair share of literary catastrophists as well, who have illuminated their readers and motivated them to live long in order to delve deeper into the darkness of the human condition often accompanied by sardonic laughter to be shared with their fellow miserabilists, Edgar Allan Poe, Dorothy Parker and Charles Bukowski, to name but a famous few. Onwards and Ash's film ruminates on the perceived dangers of AI in the workplace, employees' labour, purpose and prospects being superseded by software systems and hardware packages that are far more productive, precise and durable than present state human beings could ever be. It is solemnly expressed that there is no turning back from such technological change. But surely this has always been the case. Surely human history itself is actually defined by such advancements, however terrifying and world-ending they appeared to have been at the time. For instance, the Luddites destroying power looms in early 19th century England spring to mind. The invention of the motor car replacing horse-drawn carriages in Germany later in that century as well as the discovery of fossil fuels, eradicating the whaling industry along the east coast of the United States in the early 20th century. The issue, however, is not really the technology itself, but the ideological motivations behind the people who pay for it and produce it, who install it and impose it. For these people are very much a part of a very long tradition of individuals and institutions who have overseen the wanton destruction of this planet's life, learning and liberty with whatever tools that have been to hand, bestowing upon us, as a result, wars, genocide, poverty and pollution. As a storyteller, Asher is on much firmer ground when he reflects upon his own family origins and history, 
and the extent of his emotional relationship with his relatives is effectively represented by the replacement of AI still imagery with personal photographs and newspaper cuttings. We learn that his Jewish great-grandparents fled persecution and the pogroms in Neshen in Ukraine at the turn of the 20th century. That their son, his grandfather, established a clothing business which employed refugees in New York. And, finally, that his family purchased their own home in New Jersey. Asher observes that his family survived by paying attention, by being vigilant and by taking action. And, in turn, they thrived under the optimism proffered by President Franklin D. Roosevelt's New Deal in the 1930s. The film concludes by suggesting life is a fleeting series of snapshots, balanced between fortune and misfortune, and the future is ultimately indifferent to our wants, needs, hopes and fears. Consequently, with the somewhat mawkish tone of a spiritual self-help DVD, we are advised to live our lives to the fullest while we can. Looking Forward appears to be aimed at a middle-class audience who are so busy working at maintaining their middle-classness they haven't really had the time to read the news or reflect upon it, or upon themselves or their futures. The rise of hate in mainstream politics, the proliferation of military conflicts, the spectre of climate change, the dissemination of misinformation, the invasiveness of AI technology. In some ways then, Stephen Ash's short film is reminiscent of Woody Allen's anxiety monologues from the 1970s, self-absorbed and bourgeois, but without the personal insight, self-deprecation or wit. This has been the UK Desk for Arts Express and I've been Brett Gregory. Cheers. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, expression in the arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.